Well, it's good to be with you again this morning. Oh, thank you. As we uh, bring to conclusion a four-part series we have been working on, um, on what God is doing or maybe the plans or purposes of God, we'll revisit that in just a moment. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to make your way to Matthew chapter um, 6. I knew it was uh, there somewhere. I have it marked in my Bible here. Matthew chapter 6 is where we'll begin this morning. Uh, we have looked at this topic really for a twofold purpose. Uh, one is that we tend not to get a lot of purpose or direction or meaning from culture. I'm not saying that as a criticism of the current culture we're in, but in general, our world doesn't offer us um, where we've come from and where we're going. It, it doesn't give us hope and direction, and yet it tries to offer that. It tries to offer that through all sorts of things, whether it be government or whether it be uh, social issues or economics or 10,000 other things, and yet there's a lot of uh, incomplete and even, if you will, meaningless uh, meaninglessness in what is being presented. On the exact flip side, the Bible is one of the few books that actually attempts to answer, if you will, everything. Where have we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? And even how does it end? If you think about those kinds of questions, most books, and I used the illustration now four weeks ago, that if you compared it to the great works of Shakespeare, and many say that that's some of the best writing uh, in English ever, or maybe even some of the best writing ever, and yet Shakespeare doesn't answer those types of questions. It doesn't, he doesn't tell us where we've come from or where we're going or what our purpose is. And our purpose becomes important day by day as we uh, make our way through life and uh, want to uh, have purpose and meaning in our own lives as we look to where our country is going, where our church is going, where our culture is going. Any of those questions we're looking for direction. And so because God offers that in his word and because our world isn't able to offer that, uh, we have been focusing on what is God's plan, what is God doing, what is the what is the big picture, the big scene of what is going on. And so I want to pick up that same idea this morning uh, in Matthew chapter 6, a very familiar passage. Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7 is, Ma is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, probably his most famous sermon, taking place right at the beginning of his years of ministry, probably about three or so years of ministry that he will spend. And what he's trying to present is a kingdom view of life rather than what people are used to. And, and I say it that way because even if you remember how the Sermon on the Mount starts, or you want to just flip back to chapter 5 for a moment, uh, Jesus begins with all these statements of blessing, but the very people that he's blessing are the people who very much know they're not blessed. Uh, blessed are the poor, and the poor in his audience would be going, well, no, we're not. Uh, blessed are those who are meek, and the meek among them would probably go, well, we don't really feel blessed. And, and yet, what Jesus is doing is presenting a uh, 
kingdom with godly values rather than addressing the world and its values. And so very much the Sermon on the Mount is, is turning everything on its head and Jesus addresses many, many different issues as undoubtedly you're familiar with in the first, in, in these three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And we want to just briefly look at prayer. And again, I'm sure it's going to be familiar to you, but uh, it'll be helpful if we just spend a little bit of time looking at uh, Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. Again, we're sort of maybe halfway through the sermon, give or take, and uh, Jesus turns to the issue of prayer, and he says, and when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. So just before we even get into the sample prayer here, we already find out that prayer is not done for informative purposes. God's not there with a blank slate going, ha, didn't know that. Hmm. Have to look into that one. Maybe I can help over here. Right? He's not, he's not asking. Uh, we don't pray because we're trying to inform God of something. He comes pre-informed, if you will. And so then Jesus goes on to say, this is how we should pray. And we have this prayer here. Often we refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. Sometimes you may have heard of it as the Disciples' Prayer. Uh, familiar, undoubtedly. Our Father in heaven, uh, hallowed be your name, or may your name be made holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I really want to only take it that far for a moment. Obviously, the entire prayer is important. But for our purposes this morning, I just want to discuss what it is that this prayer is or how it is beginning in the direction it's sending us. Our Father in heaven, it is giving us a relational aspect to God. We relate to God as family, more specifically as father. And so we begin to see God as a father, and some of us have had good fathers, and maybe some have had not so good fathers, but it's easy to picture uh, a father who loves and cares, and so that's the sort of the image that's being cast here by the prayer, uh, by the prayer that Jesus is, is giving as sort of this illustration, this is how you should pray. So our father in heaven giving his, his, the idea that he is overall, that he is above all, he is overall. He's not, you're not praying to a contemporary who might be able to help you and you help him. That's not the relationship. You're praying up to the Father in heaven, and again, this idea of holiness to your name, hallowed be your name, and then specifically verse 10, your kingdom come, very much is the language of the Sermon on the Mount about this coming kingdom, or the kingdom has come in in Jesus coming to earth, and very much uh, the language of all of Matthew, the kingdom language especially, in all the Gospels, kingdom is emphasized the most in the book of Matthew, and so the prayer is that God's kingdom would come, and then this, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We would be familiar with that prayer. We would probably know how to recite that prayer. Maybe you went to school where you said that prayer. I went to public school in Canada, and we said that prayer uh, every morning. Uh, that was common in, in our classes and in our school. Um, the simple question is, what's God's will? That becomes the question. If we are going to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we would have to ask the question, what's God's will? What are we praying for? Your will, uh, your will to be done, but we don't really know what it is. We're not even sure what it's... Well, we do know what God's will is. 
Sometimes, especially in our culture today, we have made God's will into all sorts of very specific things. We're looking for a new car, and do we go red or do we go blue? You know, well, what's God's will? As if, as if that's where the, the, the details of God is in car color. And it's not to say God doesn't care or God doesn't know what might be easier for you to keep clean or whatever it might be. But God's will is presented to us throughout his word. And so this model of prayer of asking that God's kingdom, the way it works in heaven, which would be like this. God would say to, to the angel Gabriel, go, and, and Gabriel would go right he might say to someone to do this and they would do it that's how the kingdom of heaven would be structured right they would be those who are in God's presence the 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 angelic realm would be obedient uh, to God your kingdom come on earth make it work on earth the exact same way it's working in heaven so that when God tells someone to go they go when he calls them to do his will, the call is to do his will. And so this is why this is so important. We must know what God's will is even to follow the model of prayer. We are wishing that God's will would be done in Stonebriar, right? We would want that. We would want God's will to be done in the marathon class. We would want God's will to be done in your life, in your family, in my life, in your situation, in this situation over here. May God's will would be done through the missionaries that we support and those who are bringing the gospel to the nations, so on and so forth. We would want God's will to be done. So we need to know what God's will is. And Jesus presents this without sort of any, oh, and by the way, here's the three top things for God's will. No, he assumes that they know it because the text if you will, is full of God's will, full of God's purposes, full of God's plan. And so the the, the goal in this model prayer, call it the Lord's Prayer, call it the Disciples' Prayer, is that we begin to call for God's will to be accomplished. And and so as we look at God's will or God's plan or God's purposes or, or what God is doing, we see that's what we're praying for, that God would be Uh, that God's will would be accomplished. And so if we just look back at the last three weeks, we see very briefly in Genesis 1, God uniquely creates us as image bearers. And male and female are both made in the image of God. And then we see um, by Genesis 3 that we as image bearers have fallen away. We've broken our relationship with a holy God because we have sinned through Adam and Eve. And ultimately, that will get extended to all of us. And yet God still has a purpose for his image bearers who have now sinned against him. And that is that they would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so this idea of spreading God's image amongst the earth or across the earth or around the world is always part of his purpose. And of course, as that happens, you have many image bearers all around the world, but there are those who do not know whose image they bear. And so that becomes the will of God. And you start to see this, and you see this through, we talked about the Exodus story, if you remember, and God's entire purpose in the book of Exodus was to reveal himself so that the Egyptians would know who he is, and so that his people, the Israelites, would know who he is, and that Pharaoh would know who God is. And so God is revealing himself among the people so that they might know, ultimately, for the goal of bearing his image well. 
And so we see that theme through the prophets. We picked it up in Jesus' ministry uh, last time together, and we saw even uh, in Jesus' words that his concern wasn't merely for the Jews, and certainly Jesus was concerned about the Jews, but he gave illustration after illustration of how God works beyond the Jews and and ultimately among the nations. And so we're going to see that similar thing here. I want to show you once in Jesus' prayer, and then we're going to work primarily in the book of Acts. So uh, briefly to John 17. John 17. A prayer that Jesus is praying um, um, as recorded in the Gospel of John before he'll go to the uh, Garden of Gethsemane where ultimately he will be arrested and the events leading to his crucifixion and ultimately resurrection uh, begin to unfold. So this is this is uh, just before his death. He has this prayer that's recorded in John 17. Really, we should read all of it. It's a, it's a rich uh, uh, prayer of, of what Jesus is calling for, first praying for his disciples, and then he'll go beyond that. But we'll just focus in light of time, uh, beginning in verse 20, John 17, verse 20. Jesus praying to the Father, saying, my prayer is not only for them alone, and the them alone is the disciples. He's been praying for his disciples, those in his hearing. And he goes on and says, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them, all of them may be one. So we got a couple of thems going on here. Let's make sure we understand. He's been praying for his disciples. <clears throat> Excuse me. He knows that the job of his disciples, which will eventually be called apostles will be to preach the message, to proclaim the message, and ultimately to write the message down. And when they write that message down, now we get a copy of the message, right? And that's what we're getting from Peter and from John and ultimately from uh, the Apostle Paul once he begins to write. And so now Jesus is praying. I'm not only praying for my disciples and those who will go out and preach the word and those within my hearing here in the first century, um, but those who will believe in me through their message. Well, that would be us, right? Believers in the message. I wasn't there with Jesus, but I believe in the message. The message was written down for me, was written down for you, and we are believers in the message. That all of them may be one. So there is a oneness that Jesus is praying for, not merely amongst the living body of believers, but a oneness amongst the body of believers through time that we would be one with the first century church and ultimately that we would be one with the second century and third century, that there would be continuity in the community of faith. Father, just as you are in me and I in you, may they also be in us, why Jesus, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Notice that the prayer, even as Jesus is about to go to the cross, is not merely for the Jews, or Judea, or, or, or for Jerusalem, but his prayer is for the world, so that the world might believe that you have sent me. Um, on in 22, I have given them the glory you gave me, that you might be one, I'm sorry, that they might be one as we are one, I in them, and you in me. And so Jesus is praying, not only for the disciples, but the effect the disciples have on all future generations to produce believers so that the world may know. That, that, that's the idea. And then he kind of repeats it just a few verses later, jump down to verse 25. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, 
Now we're referring to the world again. I know you, and they know that you have sent me, and I have made you known to them, and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me might be in them, and I myself may be in them. The them is the world. Jesus is praying that the gospel goes to the world, to all people, to image bearers. God has asked that the image bearers should be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Jesus is praying that the image bearers will know me, the very one that God has sent ultimately to redeem the sinfulness of the image bearers. So this becomes a theme. We spent a couple of weeks in the Old Testament seeing this theme, a a couple of references here to Christ. I want to look in the book of Acts and I want to sort of show you how this develops. Uh, Make your way to Acts chapter 1, if you will. Uh, The book of Acts is really better titled uh, The Acts of the Apostles. And what it records is sort of the history of the church from the time that Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father, that's in chapter 1, to where Paul will get the gospel uh, all the way to Rome. So it's kind of a history book, the Acts of the Apostles. Um, If you study it real carefully, you might have sympathy. I've been trying to rename this book. Uh, No one has been sort of following my campaign, but it actually isn't the Acts of the Apostles because they're not all there. The Acts aren't all there and the Apostles aren't all there. I would like to call it some of the Acts of some of the Apostles, okay? But again, it's not catching on. I wouldn't recommend you use that title. No one will know what you're talking about. But that's really what the book is. I I say that sort of in humor, but that's what the book is, right? It's selectively recording certain instances so we can see what God is doing, if you will, in in the birthing of the church, in the development of the church. And so for primarily you break Acts down, the first portion, it's following Peter, and then it begins really by Acts chapter 9 to follow Paul. And so we're seeing... Uh, the work of Peter and ultimately the work of Paul, or maybe better said, the work of the Spirit through Peter and the work of the Spirit through Paul in planting churches and ultimately reaching the nations. I want you to just to follow this thread with me, beginning in Acts chapter 1, uh, verse 6. They gathered around him, that's his disciples around Jesus, and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. So notice, the question is, is this the time? It's a timing question. Answer, yes it is, no it isn't, not yet, three more weeks, 12 more years. Those are the expected answers. Jesus' answer is, you're not asking the right kind of question. Don't ask the timing question. The timing question isn't the right question. It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but here's what I can do to answer your question. So the question was, is this the time? The answer is, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Okay, so they asked a timing question. He replied with, you're going to get empowered with, to do, if you will, the mission of God, the plan of God, the purposes of God. Where are they? They're in Jerusalem. And so Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You will bear witness. It's the idea of you will be able to testify 
to what you have seen and heard. Your eyewitnesses to my miracles. You were there when I did the 5,000, right? Five loaves, two fish, 5,000. And, and, and they all were fed. Uh, you were there when I walked on water and you were all scared. Uh, you were there when I calmed the storm. You were there when I healed the paralytic. You, on and on and on. And so you will be my witnesses. You were there for my death and now you are sitting with me in my resurrection. You will be my witnesses when the Holy Spirit comes upon. You can't do this on your own. It'll take God's power to accomplish God's plan. So you will need the Holy Spirit. And when you receive it, you will be my witnesses. Where am I going to start? Right here. Start right here in Jerusalem. Ultimately, then in Judea, the surrounding area of Jerusalem, onto Samaria, which would be the northern area, big chunk of land, and to the ends of the earth. And so the plan is always global, which very much matches what, what God told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. You remember God said to Abraham and to his wife that uh, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. And Abraham and Sarah, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's always been a global plan, and here we are in the New Testament. Jesus is about to ascend to the right hand of the Father. His ministry, his incarnational ministry is done, right? He's done living here on earth. He's going to go to the right hand of the Father, but the mission is exactly the same. Nothing's changed. What's the goal? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the world. They probably had no idea where the ends of the world were. Probably in their world, Spain that's it, right? That we just don't know past Spain, right? Spain's it. So none of us matter in their world, right? More than likely, they had no sense of beyond Spain, but wherever the world ends, there. And so it didn't even matter whether they knew where the world ended, right? You got no sense that this was a Jewish religion or that this was uniquely for the land of Israel or as the Romans would call it, Palestine or some other select group. It wasn't for the rich or just for men. It wasn't for a particular language. And I'm going to show that to you all. But, but it was for image bearers throughout the earth that they would be, well, if we use the Greek word, Acts would have been written in, the, in Greek. The word is for witnesses, martyreo, where we would get the word martyr from. What is a martyr? A martyr is one who bears witness, and it costs them their lives. And so this is the idea. You will be my martyreos, my witnesses, my testifiers, my people who will tell Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And so that is the plan, and it's going to begin to unfold. Obviously, we can't take all the passages. Go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the coming of the Holy Spirit. It's 10 days after Jesus ascends to the right hand of the Father. Uh, so it's 50 days after Jesus' uh, uh, death on the cross. Um, and, uh, or, or I guess the resurrection. It's uh, 50 days after his resurrection. And uh, so the disciples are waiting around. Do you remember eventually the Holy Spirit comes? Look at the context to which God creates in order to send the Spirit. And if you were with us last week, and I just need to sort of remind you that the Spirit of God is always given to empower people to accomplish the plan of God, or the program of God, or the mission of God, or the work of God. Why does God have his Spirit indwell the, the, the church and give spiritual gifts to the church? To accomplish his will, to accomplish his purposes. Why did Jesus, if you're with us last week in Luke chapter 4, go home to Nazareth in the power of the Spirit? 
because Jesus had to stand in Nazareth, his hometown, and remind them that the gospel was for more than Nazareth, and that wasn't a message well received. You remember they they wanted to kill him. They wanted to push him over the edge of the cliff in his hometown. And, and, and so how did he, how was he able to do that? Well, he was in the power of the spirit. And so the spirit is what empowers us to accomplish. In other words, we don't go, oh my goodness, God's plan, how are we ever going to do it? We're not. It's simple. But God's spirit can empower us that we can do more than we are able to comprehend that we are able to do on our own. So uh, this is the context in which God is now going to pour out his spirit. This is something that was anticipated in the Old Testament. For example, in the minor prophet Joel, it was anticipated. And now God's spirit is literally going to start to live amongst all believers. Everyone who believes has the power of the spirit, which means everyone who believes has a purpose. The will of God. That's why it's in the prayer, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done. So if you want to do the will of God, you've got to know the will of God. And his will is that all image bearers would praise his name, would know his name, would worship him. That's the direction that we're going. Uh, Acts chapter 2, just verse 5. While they were staying in Jerusalem, this is the disciples, God-fearing Jews from... Every nation under heaven. Luke is the writer of Acts. And so this is a Lucan phrase. Luke's phrase is every nation under heaven. Many of the Old Testament's uh, prophets, their phrase was uh, to the nations or to the nations of the world. Um, John's phrase in the Gospel of John, the way he always describes it is the world. For God so loved the world, right? Had Luke written it, he probably would have written something like this. For God so loved the nations of the world. That's probably what Luke would have written, right? The Old Testament prophets, probably had they been writing that verse, they would have written something like, for God so loves the nations. So you have all these phrases that all mean the same thing. And it's easy for us. We understand that the world, the nations uh, in this case. But again, notice the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out while the disciples are in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. That's the plan, that the Spirit's going to come out and who's going to be there? Every nation. Ideally, again, it would be great if we could go through all of Acts chapter 2. But you probably know the story. The Holy Spirit comes poured out and gets poured out. And Peter begins finally, after all his failures in following Christ, now he's empowered by the Spirit. And it's nothing but positive for Peter. No more failures, no more foot in your mouth, no more telling Jesus no when Jesus says this is what's about to happen. And Peter goes, well, no, it's not. No more of that. Now he's empowered with the Spirit. And he proclaims the gospel. And through the power of the Spirit, see, the problem with Peter is he said, He's a northern fisherman. He's from nowhere. He barely knew his own language, let alone all the other languages. But God's program is for the nations. And as a matter of fact, now we're told that there are Jews from every nation under heaven. Okay? And so just take that as a lot of places. Okay? 
So if you think back to the Old Testament, you have Jews who end up in Alexandria in Egypt, and you have Jews that end up assimilated into the Assyrian Empire in places like Nineveh, think of Jonah. Uh, you have Jews who are in Babylon, think of the 70-year exile, and that many of those people stayed in Babylon, they never went back. You have Jews in places like Persia, think of the story of Esther and Mordecai, Jews living in Persia, Esther becomes queen, Mordecai becomes sort of the, the chief steward of, of the king after Haman's death and so on and so forth. You've had Jews dispersed all over the place. In other words, in the Jewish failures and disobedience of God, God has spread them out so that he could reach all nations. God is literally redeeming their failures. He is about to pour the spirit out on all these people, and he's got a fisherman who's going to do the speaking. And so what does God do with the spirit? He lets everyone hear it in their own language. Isn't that amazing? He could have just gotten one of those language guys who's really good at 12 languages. You ever come across one of those guys? And, and, and they know language, and they can go from this language to this language. They could address all the people. And God goes, no, I'll just use the Spirit and Peter. And so Peter preaches the gospel, refers back to the book of Joel in the anticipation of the pouring out of the Spirit. And people from all over the world, from all these different nations, are hearing them in their own tongue. So there are Egyptians there hearing Peter, Egyptian Jews, let me be more specific, there are Egyptian Jews there, Jews who are living in Alexandria, who are he hearing Peter speak Egyptian, right? There are people hearing all sorts of languages because the Spirit is letting them hear it in their own tongue. And notice again to accomplish the purpose, the purpose of, of, the, uh, uh, of reaching the nations, multi-languages. We get multiple languages in, the, in, in Acts chapter 2. We get multiple ethnicities, and I'm going to pick that up in just a moment here. Uh, we get uh, multiple races. We would have multiple skin colors. And so in the diversity of image bearers, God is desiring that all of them, which all represent his image, all skin colors represent God's image, all languages represent God, God's image. Male and female represent God's image. And so God has created unbelievable diversity. And what the call is for diversity is in the diversity, unify. Acts chapter 6. One of the first issues of diversity in the church. Acts chapter 6. We've got the spirit. Spirits poured out some 2,000 people in Acts chapter 2 believe. We now have believers going back to their home countries, primarily Jews at this point, maybe even exclusively Jews. And so the gospel is spreading because the Spirit was poured out at a time when people were traveling to celebrate Pentecost at, uh, in Jerusalem. And so God is taking advantage of that. Now the word is spreading, if you will, because people are simply going home. However, we get the church started in Acts chapter 6, in verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, so the, the church is growing, the disciples are increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in daily distribution of food. What's the first problem in the church? There is not unity over the diversity. One group gets overlooked. It's the same thing that's going to happen throughout church history. It's the same thing that happens today, and it's the same thing that will happen tomorrow. A Hellenistic Jew is a Jew who has begun to speak Greek. 
we've got to go a little bit back in time, about 333 years before Jesus was born, 333 BC, roughly 333 years before Jesus was born, Alexander the Great, this Greek general, comes and conquers in their words, a little bit the known earth, probably not quite the known earth, but nonetheless, a massive amount of land. His Greek armies, he uses a different strategy than they've been familiar with. And in 333, he passes through Israel and, and conquers. And one of the sort of the leftovers of being conquered by Alexander the Great is they make their language the language of trade. So if you're in business, if you're in sales, and, and you want to sell goods, your instruction manual needs to be in Greek, because Greek will work for everyone. And, and so many people begin to learn Greek, and that is called Hellenization. So for the last 300 years, there have been people living in Israel, Jews, who have begun to speak Greek, probably pragmatically. They were involved in trade, and simply to trade, you have to know Greek. Greek became the language of the nations. Now, nations still had many other languages, but Greek was the, the trade language. It's the language that, let me give you poor illustration, but if you're a pilot, air traffic control around the world works in English. It's the language of pilots, so that if you're flying in a faraway place, you can radio into air traffic control in English, and they'll be able to answer you in English. So I think that's true. Are there any pilots here? Good. It's true then. Okay? It's true because true I have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, I, I think that's true. I, that's my understanding is there's some truth to that. <clears throat> okay? And so Greek becomes this dominant language. So you've got widows who are speaking Greek. Okay? And you have Hebraic widows, widows who still speak the old language. Well, what do you think that the attitude would be between those who, who adapted because of Alexander the Great, that Gentile who ran through Israel in 333 BC, or those who didn't adapt? Who do you think is trying to one-up the other one? Yeah, and you've got trouble in the church because what's really happening? Widows are not getting fed. And so the problem, in those days, the number of disciples was increasing. The Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows, the Hebraic, uh, I'm sorry, the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked <clears throat> um, uh, 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 in favor of the Hebraic widows. So in other words, the poor widow, if she came from a Greek-speaking upbringing and she was a Greek speaker, she was not getting taken care of but those who spoke Hebrew were. That's what was going on. And so if you know Acts chapter 6, they, they, they now want to choose some deacons and start to meet the needs of the church and not do it in a, a disunified fashion. The Hellenistic Jews, the Greek-speaking Jews, uh, uh, widows, they need, their needs need to be met, and the Hebraic-speaking Jews, their needs need to be met. And so they call up these men, men like Stephen, who's going to give this great testimony in Acts chapter 8. Men like Philip, who's going to all of a sudden get called to the road that goes down to Gaza. And maybe we should pick up the story there in uh, Acts chapter 8. So Philip is one of those guys who gets called to uh, serve in the church and make sure everyone's needs are met. Because, by the way, this isn't natural. This isn't easy. This is what you would call supernatural. This is what would require the spirit. 
You see, we always want to gather to our own, our own type, and whether that's a language type, or whether that's men against women, or whether that's a skin color, we're always prone to do that, and that works precisely against the plan of God, the purpose of God, the will of God, and ultimately the power of God in the spirit is the only way to break that. And so the Spirit moves in the church to raise up those to make sure everyone's needs are, are met rather than selective. We're going to meet the needs of Hebrew speakers, but not Greek speakers. And, and so that's a problem in the church from the beginning, and that'll always be a problem because people will constantly want to do things outside the work of the Spirit. What is the Spirit doing? It's helping us recognize the value of all image bearers, regardless of race regardless of skin color or height or language or ethnicity or tribal background or gender or any other division you can come from. This is the direction that we're going. Acts chapter 8, um, <clears throat> Philip is called... Um, uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And if you remember, Philip goes down to that road and he finds an Ethiopian eunuch reading the Isaiah scroll. Maybe something he was able to buy in Jerusalem. Maybe he was there for Pentecost and so on. So he's reading it, but he's not understanding it. You can read the story there in Acts chapter 8. Philip asks, do you understand what you are reading? And, and of course, the Ethiopian says, well, how could I unless someone explains it to me? And so Philip goes and begins to explain uh, Isaiah 52 and 53, which is the passage of the suffering servant, which was, of course, a prophetic uh, passage uh, referring to Jesus. Uh, the Ethiopian eunuch believes, takes the gospel to Ethiopia. I mean, that's how it goes. Not only that, there were probably other Jews living in Ethiopia, no doubt, because in Acts chapter 2, we find out that there were Jews from every nation under earth. So it's always been, even though the biblical spotlight is primarily on Israel, the goal has never been merely Israel. Yes, Israel, but Israel and all nations. Acts chapter 9, we get the story of Saul, and if you think of Saul's conversion, you remember he is very much against Christ and Christ's followers. He's a Jewish legal scholar, a Pharisee, uh, trained by the best of the best, and so he knows in his understanding of the Old Testament that Jesus is not the promised Messiah, and that uh, the church are just wicked people who are corrupting Judaism, and so he goes after them. He's on his way to Damascus, and he runs into Jesus and all of a sudden he finds out his legal degree let him down that he didn't understand the Old Testament that Jesus was the Messiah and that he is blinded by the experience led the rest of the way to Damascus and then God tells him Saul at this point he'll get renamed Paul shortly uh, but Saul that he's going to bring a man named Ananias to him and so Ananias comes we pick up the story in verse uh, 15 but the Lord said to Ananias Ananias wasn't that interested in going because Paul kind of or Saul had a reputation of you know killing people so Ananias wasn't that interested the Lord said to Ananias go this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. Well, Jews plus Gentiles, that's a fancy way of saying everyone. This is my instrument. This foul mouth guy? Yeah, this guy. 
I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Saul, later Paul, will get commissioned to go to the Gentiles. Pick up the story, Acts chapter 13. Uh, by this time, Paul is, is now, he's still called Saul. Uh, uh, no, uh, Saul, yeah, he's still called Saul. It's halfway through chapter 13 that he becomes Paul. Um, he's still called Saul. He is now a committed follower of Christ, and, and, and he has had to redo his entire law degree. Because he was a Pharisee, he was an expert in the Old Testament, and yet he found out everything he understood about the Old Testament was wrong. So he's been some three years, maybe, uh, redoing his law degree, re-understanding that the Old Testament points to Jesus, not away from Jesus, but to Jesus. He's doing work at a church in Antioch, up north of, of, of Israel, north of, of Lebanon, and we pick up the story in chapter 13. Now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and Barnabas and Simon called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan and he had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. That Saul is Paul. Saul, Paul, end of verse 1. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, here's the work of the Spirit again. Why do we need the Spirit? Because to accomplish the plan of God or the purpose of God, you need the Spirit of God. You cannot do it on your own. So they're worshiping, they're praying, they're fasting, they're in Antioch. Lord, what do we do? Verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Lord, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and they sent them off. Off where? To the nations. Paul's first missionary journey, right? He goes, he, he, if there's a Jewish synagogue, he starts there. That's generally just so that he can get kicked out. He generally gets kicked out. And then he goes to the Gentiles and he proclaims the gospel. And, and works start and lives are changed. And all of a sudden there's little churches in all these Roman places as he goes. He comes back, he rests, he regroups. Sometimes he even changes partners and goes out for another missionary journey. And all of a sudden you're getting churches in places like Ephesus, probably the third largest city in the world at that time, at least the third largest in the Roman Empire. And you've got a church in Ephesus and in Corinth and in Thessalonica and, and, and in Berea and on and on. Paul is planting churches. If you and I were there, we would say, keep going, Paul. Go on missionary journey number four and five and six and seven. And God says, no. In the midst of Paul's success, God says, <clears throat> I think this would be a good time to get him arrested. Let's bring this. This is so successful, we should stop. There is no fourth missionary journey. Paul's arrested. And, and, and God says to Paul, right. Had Paul done what I would have told Paul to do, which is go again, go on missionary journey number four and five and six and go to Spain and, and, and Britain and wherever else you can go, go and share the gospel, I would have tried to ride the success. God stopped the success. He said, I'm going to get you arrested and I'm going to let you be locked up and you will write. And you know what? We wouldn't be here today if Paul hadn't written for us. It's great that he planted all those churches, that he shared the gospel, but then in his wisdom, he gave us more books in the New Testament than anyone else, because God stopped them to accomplish his purposes. God's purposes are running throughout the book of Acts, and of course we see them culminated in the very end, 
in the book of Revelation, and this will help us to tie together what God said in Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, is ultimately what happens when we get to the book of Revelation, and it all comes to an end. Revelation 5, 9, and they sang a new song. They said, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Uh, that is to Jesus, because you were slain uh, with your blood, you purchased for men from God of every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. There was the purpose of God, to purchase men through the shedding of his blood for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 7 verse 9, and after this John writes, I looked down before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Imagine that. Who's in heaven? A multitude so big no one can count. And who are they? Every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue, every tribal group, any division of person you can imagine, they're all there. That was the plan all along. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God wants his image throughout the earth that he could be worshipped because that was what we were made for. And so we see the culmination of all things. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. Revelation 15, verse 2, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. They held harps. These are believers. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. By the way, the first thing that happens when Moses and the Israelites cross the Red Sea, back in the book of, uh, of, of, of the Exodus, the very first thing, the very first time in all of scripture, they get to the other side, God closes the water, the, 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 sea, is, uh, the, the sea wipes out the, uh, uh, the Egyptian army, and they sing. Exodus 15, the first song in the Bible, and now we go back and we refer to it. And they sang the song of Moses. You see, when God acts, our response is to worship and to sing. And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. <clears throat> Uh, just and true are your ways, King of all the ages. Uh, who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so when we talk about praying the Lord's Prayer, um, your kingdom come, your will be done, we must know what God's will is. And God's will has been consistent from Genesis 1, uh, through the history, through the poetry, through the prophecy, through Jesus' ministry, and ultimately to the very end, that all nations would come as one. So God creates uh, a diversity through languages and skin colors and, and gender, male and female, and nations. And the purpose of the diversity is to bring unity in worship to him. That's our purpose. That's how we experience the world, knowing this is where it's going. This is how we are to live in recognition of that's where things are going. To all nations, the gospel for all people. Father, we're so grateful that you have given us a purpose, that we're not uh, here wondering what our purpose is or why you have saved us, but you have given us uh, the job of reaching those who bear your image, all people, 
all types, all shapes, all sizes. And in your mercy, not only have you called us to go to faraway places, but you brought the nations to us. Nations living amongst us in this country. Nations living together in other countries. People all mixed together, all to show your beauty and to bear your image. And so we pray, Father, that you would help us to bear your image well. That we would represent you well amongst all that we meet. That we would live for you. And that we would share you as living testimonies, as, as witnesses, bearing your truth, as the disciples were called to do in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Father, may we be reminded of our purpose, and in that, that we might be empowered by your Spirit to live for you and to do all that you have called us to do. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.